I think that element of local produce is really creating individuality for different regions. You go to Latin America, you have ingredients you've never even heard of or seen before, and they're just making cocktails that places in the UK and Australia and elsewhere just can't replicate. It's creating real identity for different areas. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is Tristan Stevenson. On today's episode, I am talking to Shay Waterworth. Shay is a journalist and the editor of Drinks International. On the episode, Shay tells me about his background, training as a journalist, and how he ended up writing about spirits and cocktails. We discuss the art of journalism and writing, how journalism has evolved in the digital age, and where it might end up in the emerging age of artificial intelligence. Shay also gives some tips to anyone looking to write more and get published. We talk about trends and how they're affecting the development of emerging cocktail markets, brand events and product launches, filtering the good news from the bad, the Bar World 100 list, future projects, and Shay shares with me a piece of writing that he is especially proud of. It's always interesting to get a journalist's eye view of the Bar World, and this was no exception. So now I give you Shay Waterworth. Okay, I'm here with Shay Waterworth. Hi, Shay. Justin, you okay? Yeah, good, thank you. We are going to kick things off, um, as is customary around here, with your quickfire questions. So, are you ready? Absolutely. All right, here we go. What do you garnish a Negroni with? Orange peel. Favorite guilty pleasure cocktail? Um, pina colada. Do you ever post inspirational quotes on social media? Definitely not. <laughs> uh, what do you think of leather bar aprons? Not a fan. No, me neither. Not very absorbent. Uh, how many pull-ups can you do in a row? 20. That's good. Oh, that's good. 20 is a good number. Um, would you rather have the head of the dog and the body of a human or the head of a human and the body of a dog? Uh, body of a human and the head of a dog. Nice, yes. Uh, and what one drink do you order the most? Dry uh, martini. Same. Vodka. Vodka. Okay, cool. Vodka, vo- vodka martini. I like it. Hmm. Do you, what do you garnish it with? Uh, lemon. Oh, nice. That ends your quick fire questions. Well done. That was uh, pretty harmless to be fair. I was expecting some uh, some tougher stuff. But... <laughs> <laughs> Not too bad. So, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to have a chat with you and learn a little bit more about what you do with Drinks International and what it's like being a journalist in the industry. Um, maybe... To begin with, you can give us a little bit of a potted bio of yourself and how you got into the drinks industry and, and into journalism. Yeah, sure. So I actually was lucky enough to know that I wanted to be a journalist when I was sort of 15, 16. So everything I did for studies, I, I focused towards journalism, did an undergrad in journalism. So I was actually a, a journalist for England Rugby for a year. And then a, a reporter role for Drinks International came up. I was lucky enough to get the job and then from there just worked my way up the ladder and six or seven years later, I'm um, now editor, which is great. And no regrets, you're not thinking about going back to sports and leaving us anytime soon? Not at all, no. It's um, it, it's amazing the difference in the, in the attitudes between a rugby player who sees the media as kind of a, an afterthought or in most cases a nuisance compared to... You know, the drinks industry who, you know, bartenders, brands, yeah. companies, all they want to do is talk to journalists. So it's a complete role reversal. Yeah, it is. It is. So you mentioned you uh, you got a degree. Do you think um, if someone, you know, was listening to this who's thinking about getting into journalism um, and they haven't got a degree, do you think, you know, there's still an opportunity there? Do you think it's essential? 
if you just if you know you want to be a journalist, then I would recommend just going and studying doing a degree in journalism because it gives you an amazing base level of knowledge and skills to do it. Um, but if you're already an expert in a field, there's nothing to say that you can't do some voluntary roles, get a column with a mm. a magazine, and then work your way from there. It's it's it happens a lot. Thinking about bartenders who are listening to this, who might want to get into writing for a publication have you got any sort of tips for anyone who might be thinking about getting into writing bartenders are, are creatives um themselves and so i think probably it's something that's on a radar of a lot of a lot of them yeah for sure uh, being proactive come up with ideas or examples of work already then you know it's a lot more engaging and also the fewer words the better in my opinion um, why there's no point in saying a thousand words on something if it can be 350 is it a mark twain quote I, I know so many quotes are attributed to mark twain you never know whether it's actually him but there's uh that one uh, i would have written a shorter letter but i didn't have enough time but isn't it absolutely that's uh <laughs> it's very close to my heart that one it, it's harder to write something in short form in my opinion you know it's it's easy to thousand words on the history of the daiquiri but if you had to do it in 350 it'd be bigger challenge in my opinion yeah what's your job like these days are you doing a lot of traveling now the world's open back up have you been been moving about the place i mean it drinks international so i assume you are a man of international mystery (laughs) yes uh less mystery but certainly international we um (laughs) we split the travel between us but uh as a magazine, we're we're trying to be as global as possible. That's cool. So, I mean, I don't I don't get to travel anywhere near as much as I used to. Um, but I do uh, look back on the time when I was traveling a lot and and um, remember, you know, what it was like to see all these cities that were had emerging cocktail cultures and bar operators that were you know innovating within their area. What does it look like to you now, as, as you know, someone who's moving around these places? What are you seeing in cities? Um, you know, is it a replication of what's going on elsewhere or are you seeing really kind of, you know, individual takes and, and local kind of twists on, on cocktail culture and bars? Yeah, we're seeing there's certainly an element of replication in that, uh, you know, for the past sort of five, ten years, we've obviously had the, the cherishing of local ingredients and local sourcing. And that's been you know, highly championed and sustainability in that aspect of everything. Um, and bars in more emerging regions are doing the same thing i think that element of local produce is really it's creating individuality for different um regions i mean you go to latin america and you, you have ingredients you've never even heard of or seen before and they're just making cocktails that places in the uk and australia and elsewhere just can't replicate without obviously importing it so it's it's creating real identity for different areas. Hmm. So it's interesting because so the trend that's originated probably in uh, you know in Europe or America for like ultra local, ultra seasonal, has then been borrowed by you know emerging cocktail markets. So in that sense, it's borrowed, but it has then triggered you know individuality and unique take on cocktails through those methods and processes absolutely where, where do you think um sort of the innovation is going for um let's call it the more traditional cocktail regions like you know like london and new york and the european cities and so on um because in in a sense the the rise of like 
sustainability, local sourcing and everything actually creates a bit of a barrier to then adopt new trends um, if they're not compatible with the sustainability one. Everything has to go through that filter now, really. Uh, so if, like in the past when, you know, everyone was garnishing cocktails with a fasalis, we don't, we can't do that anymore. If a new fruit emerges that looks great or tastes great or, you know, is the flavor of the month, it can't just be, you know, brought in and, and put on every menu in the country because it's likely not from around here. And, you know, therefore there's, you know, carbon cost of bringing it over and so on. Well, I think ultimately when it, when it comes to actually spirit side of, of making drinks, nearly everything is going to be made in the country where, of, in the UK or in America. For example, in the Isle of Man, there's now a, a distillery called Outlier, which is making white rum. Whereas, you know, five, 10 years ago, we would have had to get in Ray Nephew for an over, overproof white rum. There's now one which is 20 kilometers away from all of the bars on the island. So it's um, f from that element, I mean, apart from obviously things like Scotch whiskey, which has to be imported and you know, things with uh, geographical indicators, mm. pretty much everything else is going to be distilled or made in, in mm. cities around the world. Um, rye whiskey, another example. Presumably your, um, your rum distillery on the Isle of Man is importing its molasses though. And Isle of Man hasn't become a sugar island. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. That's, but then is it more sustainable to import the raw material and then bottle it and thing on site at the distillery and then send the actual contents over a shorter period or import a ready-made product, which is heavy bottles and pallets from the Caribbean to all around the world? Yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that question, actually. Instinctually, you'd say, well, it's better to import the molasses um, and then make the product and bottle it all there at the distillery. But... Um, I think it does depend on the material that you're making it from because sometimes you need a lot of material um, whereas it, and you know a fully finished made spirit in a bottle is a kind of compacted concentrated form of that material um, so I don't know I, I, I think it would depend on where you are where it's come from what it's made from as to exactly how all that stacks up but I mean anyway I'm all for new rum distilleries so uh, no <laughs> nothing against the Isle of Man rum distillery <laughs> absolutely um, and then, and then, like you said, on the on the fruit side of things, I think we can be more experimental with um, overripe ingredients, underripe ingredients. You know, working with different flavors rather than just assuming that all raspberries taste the same. There's new processes coming out. Look at um, Ian and uh, Ian McPherson. I mean, he, he seems to come out with a new technique to making drinks taste completely different every week. Yeah, I, I think you're on the money when it comes to different preparations with. The same ingredient to create a different type of flavor um, whether that's you know higher acidity bitterness sweetness um it seemed that seems to be a big trend and it goes very much hand in hand with the sustainability thing as well because oftentimes it's reusing the same ingredient to get a different effect in the cooking world overripe ingredients has always been considered a good thing i mean Things like making a banana bread, you want to use overripe bananas so it actually tastes of banana. Mm. In, in the bar industry for a long time, overripe, overripe ingredients was kind of uh, shied away from. Yeah, difficult to incorporate an overripe banana into a cocktail um, <laughs> without blending it. But of course, there are ways now, you know, you can dry them out and all sorts of stuff. Um, how would you kind of uh, look at journalism and publishing at the moment, given what's kind of taking place? 
the way we've shifted towards online, the, the, the rise of social media, and now more recently AI and chat GPT, the really rapidly um, advancing intelligence of neural networks that can seemingly write relatively coherent articles in, in, in a matter of seconds. The obvious one that most people would think is like, oh, well, all of our jobs are going to go because robots are going to write the articles. And I'm certainly not sure we're there yet. But the other is just the misinformation out there. In that, you know, did a human write this? Did a robot write this? Can I believe what's been said? Because is the robot smart enough? Have you been affected by this yet? And, you know, where do you see it all going? Yeah, we, we've not been affected by it yet. But it, it's it, it's funny because in my first year of university, we had this exact conversation and that was in, uh, well, over 10 years ago now. Um, we had the same conversation about robots potentially taking over the the role of a journalist. And from a basic perspective, it makes sense because, you know, if if it's a news story and the events are told to the artificial intelligence and it's fed into them and they just put it into a structure of news writing that works and it's digestible and flows well, fine, and it would go out. But who knows who's who's feeding the information to these robots? I mean, it's that that's the the real worry from our perspective is mm. it, it, in the same way that well, bartending. I spoke to somebody about the, these robot bartenders. Have you seen the one with the mechanical arm that make it shake drinks? And um, I think there's a few in Japan and various parts of asia yeah we actually had a whole podcast episode on this um a, okay. a couple of years ago we did a whole with one of the one of the guys who's designed these robots so yeah if you listen back i think it was probably season two we did a whole we did a whole episode on kind of ai and yeah. uh, robot bartenders yeah yeah well uh, it can make the drink the ingredients will be the same but it's the, there's no interaction with the, the the customer or the new there's no nuance mm. there's no feel for what they want or what they might want extra or on the side. Um, mm. You know, a robot's not going to suggest a good pairing for somebody or it's just going to make the drink. Whereas, uh, we, so I, I, I find it hard to believe that robots, AI will be able to produce more nuanced writing, mm. which is relevant to the time and what people are wanting and have an awareness of the social environment at the same time. Mm. We shall see, shan't we? Yeah. I mean, I think with the, the robot bartender stuff, there's, um, you know, there's an opportunity for synergy there, um, wherein maybe cocktails are manufactured by a robot, but the guest experience is still led by a human um, for now. Um, I guess I see it, it's harder perhaps to find that synergy in journalism because there's obviously the degree of separation. You don't ever meet the author of an article um you're you're just you know you read it uh it's put out by them and then received by you and so you know it's it's either done by a human or it's done by a robot and you know maybe there are opportunities for synergy there you know you can quickly research using chat gpt if it's as long as it's sort of trustworthy i guess at, at that time which i don't think it is i mean i've i um i write blog posts for um whiskey me a whiskey subscription um company about uh distilleries and um, it's a distillery profile. It's like 500 words. 
but I try and make it 350 because obviously that would be better. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, it, I've, I've, I've plugged it into chat GPT to sort of say, you know, can you write this for me? And it turns out a piece of writing that on the face of it seems, you know, totally coherent and fa- it, it, it's believable. Uh, you look, you read through it and you go, well, there's just nothing you know, wrong with this. But actually, when you delve into the claims it's making as, you know, in terms of mostly historical facts, they're often wrong and often contradicts itself in the same piece, um, which is weird because it's obviously scraping this information from somewhere or other that, you know, where it's been published by a human and errors have been made. Um, but it's, it's not smart enough at the moment to be able to recognize its own contradictions in, in the same piece. When we're talking about AI, it'll be people wanting to read content by humans over machines in the same way that I would imagine that a lot of people, if they're specifically things like novels, uh, which are supposed to be purely imagination and you know, fantasy, will want to read something written by a human over over AI. Yeah. All right, let's talk a bit about um, the Drinks International Top 100. Yes. Um, do you want to, for anyone who's not come across this before, do you want to just introduce it? Yeah, so this is a concept that was uh, brought to life five years ago uh, by my colleague Hamish Smith. I'll give him the credit. Um, and... It's a, a, a ranking of the 100 most influential members of the global bar scene. We've obviously had 50 best bars and other rankings in the past, but this is the first and only one that's done by on individual names specific to the bar industry, which I believe you're on. And how does the process work um, for anyone who's listening? How, how do they go about getting themselves on this list? There's no exact science. Um, it's fluctuated quite a lot over the first five years. I mean... It's not us telling the world that there's only a hundred important people in the bar industry. It's it's who's what what tends to happen is the people that are in the list are the ones who are at the cutting edge of either, you know, bar owners of the cutting edge bars, for example, or people who are leading uh, social movements as well. Um, I always look at um, uh, Becky Paskin and her our whiskey movement. Ivy Mix with Speed Rack and other people, you know, just really leading social waves um, and doing positive, making positive change in the industry. Obviously, you get other bartenders who have a huge social media presence. Um, Daniel Nevsky, Polly Graham got a big presence in in Asia, so she's risen up the list. Um, but again, there's no there's no science behind it, um, and uh, and and the people on the list, it's. It's one of the few ways of, well, it's the only way of really quantifying your significance in the industry, um, particularly for people who are consultants, being able to put a number to their name. Yeah. Um, so how does it? How does the actual selection process go? Do you have a panel that chooses all these people, and then how, how are they ranked as well? Yeah. So we have a rolling um, voting academy. Um, and we we do a geographical spread uh the same with all of our polls actually um so a a gender split geographical split um and it rotates each year and it's um 
it can be former members of the list or it can be um the majority is media i think it's about 50 percent of it's uh members of the media hmm. um and obviously if you're on the list you you don't vote uh but you've been on the list a few times so i think you're currently the uh, 70th or something along those lines yeah i think i'm dropping off i think uh my days are numbered on that list yeah, I'll, I reckon uh, instead of getting an email saying, congratulations, you'll be on, the, on this list this year, I'll probably get an email saying, oh, would you like to vote for this list this year? <laughs> Meaning that I'm an ex-member. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's it's always funny because um, there's, we do get some people complaining about it and saying it's not necessarily healthy for the industry in a lot of ways. Um, mm. But then everybody on the list knows, you ask them what number they are and they know exactly what, you know. Well, they, they probably know each time they what, what position they were the previous year as well. So it definitely means a lot to the people that are on the list. What it, I think what it really highlights is the the diversity of our industry, and you know it's it's done by a vote, so it's you know that it's yeah reflective of our industry. Yeah, I think one of my hang-ups with it is uh, it's about influence, and oftentimes I think there are people who have been enormously influential just a few years ago who don't appear on these lists because they're not quite that flavor of the moment anymore. And yet, if you ask the top 10 people on the list who's influenced them, those would be the names that would continually come up. So it's, it's that kind of standing on the shoulders of giants thing. Um, and like, I think most of the people that have been massively influenced to me, influential to me over my career uh, have, are not on that list and maybe have never been on that list. Um, Though there, though other people which would also you know flag those names in in terms of um, the the influences that have affected them, um, and I think and, and maybe it's a symptom of asking media to um, chip in because sometimes these people are not like newsworthy people; they're kind of maybe working slightly more behind the scenes, but nevertheless like serious powerhouses in terms of influence in the industry. Um, just not the kind of people who've had articles written about them or maybe have never opened a bar or that kind of thing. So, I mean, there's no sort of perfect system for doing this kind of thing, which some, and this goes for all awards, but it sometimes makes me think we just shouldn't do it um, rather than doing an imperfect one because it's, it's it, you know, you tend to annoy as many people as you make happy and then it, it creates a bit of friction. And you know, you, I mean, you know as well as I do, when these things come out, there's always all the social media posts yeah. where it's like, oh, grumble, 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 and then, oh, look, I'm this and that, I'm on the, this number. And, I mean, it really does divide opinion a little bit. Yeah, I mean, nine times out of ten, the people complaining are the ones who haven't featured in the list. Or occasionally some people yeah. stick by their, their ideas and, you know, still appreciate the support they've got and, and the ranking they are, but still kind of uh, criticized. But um, every industry, every, everyone around the world, like every, everybody needs kind of people to look up to, I think. And, and it's a way of uh, quantifying who's, who's, and even if it is uh, each year, I think it's still relevant to know who's in influential mm. right now. I mean, it's an annual ranking. So, you should, you, well, you should, and you do see fluctuations. But uh, and that's one thing we've taken out this year is um, we haven't put the up and down rankings on, mm. you know, how much somebody's increased or how much somebody's decreased. Because oh yeah, um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that really gamified the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. we, yeah. <laughs> we. I mean, in, in the past, we've obviously with with bar rankings and things. It's one thing saying that somebody's dropped thirty places, uh, but if it's an individual, it's um, uh, it, it was an oversight from our perspective. It was just something we've done with everything else. So, but yeah, it's not not very nice to point out that somebody's dropped thirty places in a list. No, it, it, I can tell you from experience, it really wasn't nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> that uh, the, I, I think, I think, um, I think actually, uh, the one of the main points of contention that could, that probably riles people up, and perhaps even people that are on the list, is the ranking side of it. I think if you created a hundred most influential people in the bar industry, and and maybe separated it by region as well. Uh, that would be less challenging, I think, for a lot of people. But there's something about the ranking where it's like, well, that person's 79 places more important in terms of influence than that person. And that one's above me and that one's below me. And I'm not on the list, but that one there is definitely... You know, and it goes on from, from there. But uh, what, what, what do you think? I mean, a non-ranked list... If you like region by region, top twenty in Europe, top twenty in Latin America, top twenty in Amer- North America. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a it's a nice uh, in an ideological way. You know, it's uh, it would be a, a nice fair way of doing it. But ultimately, people like numbers. It's this this. I mean, people get it. Of course, again, people don't like the idea of being less important to somebody else. Mm. But, Every what bit, what really drives the excitement behind it and makes it uh, kind of an anticipated award is that it's ranked. I mean, uh, it's it's a, a sad truth in my opinion that people love numbers and love rankings. Better for the majority of people that are low down in the list to not be ranked, but the people who are you know top ten who want to shout about it and it, it takes some of their glory as well uh, away as well. So. Um, sadly, people love numbers, but they're the minority. Well, but then the top fifty people in the list—you know—if you're forty ninth, and even if you know you've dropped a few places since the previous year, you're still <laughs> top fifty in a global bar industry. So you're, while it might seem like you're low down, or but you you are—if you're on that list, you are the minority. Mm, yeah. Okay. Cool. I think there's more in there with that conversation, but we'll leave it there. Um, maybe we'll debate it, uh, continue to debate it over a drink sometime. <laughs> you can get Hamish on and he can, uh, he can take follow-up. Oh, I've had chat to Hamish about it plenty <laughs> of times. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, right. Well, uh, talk to me about events because there are so many events these days going on. I mean, I'd imagine you could probably attend one or two a day or every night if you decided you wanted to. How do you go about selecting what you're going to go to? And this goes for your team as well. Who's going to go to what? what? What's newsworthy? What's you know worthwhile going to? What's the criteria there for that? It's going to be either the launch of, a, of a, either a new brand or a new expression of a, of a brand that's We've got an international focus and it's going to be significant to not just on the area it's being launched in. Uh, I mean, a pink gin in South London is just not, hasn't been used for five years. So we wouldn't go to an event that's launching it. But then if Diageo just turned around and said, oh, we're launching a brand new uh, strawberry flavored gin, then suddenly, you know, it's got a lot more impetus um, and significance. We, we try and 
get that balance between going to the major players and going to the the smaller producers because you get a much different uh, spread of opinions and insight into what's difficult for different producers. And in terms of categories, you know, we've got to cover everything. So, you know, it's no good if we all like Scotch whiskey, there's no point in us just going to Scotch whiskey events. We've got to, you know, spread it around. I think it's good for the rest of the team to have areas that they are kind of specializing in, favoring, but we need to have a, a, a spread. So it's important for us to, you know, hit the beer, wines and spirits uh, categories yeah. relatively well, I mean, you are drinks international, like you say, and so I, I totally appreciate you've got to be relevant to the international audience. So, like a boutique um, mum and pop brand of uh, rum being made on the Isle of Man, let's say, um, you know, maybe isn't going to be relevant to to everyone. But do you do, do are you conscious of having the spread in respect of size as well, so you're not just covering you know the big multinational spirits producers um but you're also getting some of that like uh you know lower down the ladder small scale stuff so that you're reflective of the industry yeah for sure i mean even from um the people lower down the food chain they can be more open with what they're telling us as well i mean they can give us on a lot of occasions far greater insight and they don't have to worry about a pr manager telling them off or yeah um you know, giving away the secrets of a multi-million pound company. They can just <laughs> say it as it is and they can give us on-the-ground feedback on what's difficult right now. Mm. And in terms of the split of the of the journalism in the magazine online, how would you how would you split it up? Like between, let's say, covering new product launches, um, maybe like, you know, a trend piece or a bar profile or a review. Where, what, where does that sort of... If it's a pie chart, how do we split it up exactly? Uh, yeah, I'd say product launches is probably a quarter and then trends and an analysis of um, sales figures and what's being sold where and how much. And I'd say it's probably another quarter. Profiles online, it's not so much. I, I tend to prefer profiles in, in printed magazine. New openings, but then also, you know, harvest reports are very important to uh, the global industry as well. For sure, product launches does take up a lot because ultimately it's something that's going to be a common interest, particularly if it's from a big company that's got an interest across the board. So. And then choosing those, you have to must have to be quite, you must have to discriminate because you know you could just fill up web page after web page with launches. I'm assuming you don't cover absolutely everything. So, you know, where does the line get drawn on that? You, I guess the big releases from big brands as well, but then what it's something that's kind of new or innovative or perhaps from a emerging market. How do you, how do you um, balance that out? Yeah, it's something, um, something with a, like a genuine point of difference. Everybody, um, I mean, every press release says that their, um, their local gin is iconic or unique or um, you know, other buzzwords, but ultimately it's got to have a real point of difference. Either something genuinely interesting and unique that hasn't been done before that's not a gimmick. It's very easy to fall for gimmicks occasionally, but um, I actually got done by uh, Jack Sotty on uh, April Fool's Day thinking that he was launching a botanical lead uh, vape. <laughs> to, um... I would think April Fool's Day must be like kind of journal- journalists surely are very much on guard on April, April Fool's Day, the, f- the first half of the day. Like everything you read, 
just you know be a cynic <laughs> yeah and actually because it fell on saturday this year i wasn't in work mode so i saw it come into a dm mm. came into a dm on instagram which is yeah. unusual and it yeah it got me <laughs> but uh yeah it's got to be it's got to have something unique about it either a big player or a new flavor there's no point in us just covering every single gin launch that comes up because it it would be a complete waste of uh, time and, ex- and energy it's um you've got to be selective and the scotch scotch whiskey industry i mean there's there's a lot of brands launching whiskies which they're just finding a new wood type which you know is completely completely irrelevant in the industry because it's going to be so small amounts that you think well what's the point in doing it you do, it's just it's just a new word to the consumer yeah so. well and also i mean your job really as far as the reader is concerned is to you know, curate the important stuff. Uh, it would be entirely defeat the point if you just published, you know, every 10 seconds a new piece about a product launch because that's useless. You know, like no one could possibly consume all that information. We come to you because we assume that you have filtered out, you know, all the kind of mundane stuff uh, that isn't interesting and only written about the the useful bits. Yeah, I mean... It- People, we're giving the information to people that we think is relevant and important to the industry. So the stuff that's going to have a future or the stuff that has a genuine chance of Mm. making a difference or something to look out for. Yeah. So anything you've done recently that you're particularly proud of, or maybe even not recently, um, although let's not go back to your sports writing days, any articles (laughs) or profiles or pieces that you've written uh, that... That you're, that you're particularly proud of, that maybe we should send people to to read as an example of excellent journalism. There's always one interview that stands out to me. It was um, Lorraine, this is Diageo as well, uh, Lorena Vasquez, who's the master distiller of uh, Sacapo Room. Oh, yeah. Just to get to do a profile interview because she was, well, she, I think, she, I believe at the time she was the f- only female room master distiller since changed, but at the time that I believe that was the case. And um, she had just had a fascinating history, uh, born in Nicaragua, moved over to, to work and, and make rum. And uh, some of the stories she was telling me about uh, guerrilla soldiers, what I thought was going to be a, a, in it, like a nice little chat about rum and the history of it turned into something very, very serious. And it's, it's those kind of interviews that really, uh, that just never leave you. Nice. Well, um, I've met Lorena a few times and, and been over to Guatemala to the distillery as well with her and she is a remarkable woman. I, I, did, I didn't know all of that story you just alluded to there so I'm going to read the article but um, I do know she is an absolute powerhouse. Um, I've, I mean I've just seen her do talk after talk after talk and she doesn't seem to tire. She just keeps going um, and you know great rum blender as well. Oh yeah. Oh, she's got an incredible sense of uh, smell, and um, yeah. If uh, well, mm. if you just type in Lorena Vasquez drinks international, it'll be it'll come up. For somebody so so small, she's got a you know a, a huge footprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, look, I think we'll wrap it up there, Shay. It's a nice way to finish it. Um, Absolutely. Everyone will be just uh, typing in Lorena Vasquez drinks international <laughs> now, and to go off and read. Um, but it's been fun, fun chatting. Um, so what, 
what what do you say is next for you? You off got a bit of travel coming up, yeah? I'm off to Ireland next week to go and visit the new um Bushmills distillery, which um has been a while in the construction, but I think uh so that that'd be cool and then Singapore and then Lima, so it's gonna be a, a busy month. Yeah, all right. Well lots to look forward to. Awesome stuff. Okay, I hope you found that interesting. Do keep in touch. Let us know what you think. And if you haven't already, make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. It's free. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you.